I remember I was interviewing someone. I can't remember the magazine I was interviewing. It was out in LA. She was a big music star. And I remember her saying to me what she loved doing was going on a campaign to get thinner. So she'd give herself, you know, when she was being shot for her latest video or whatever, you know, I've got a, a month to lose 20 pounds. And I so related to that. You know, you have a goal. And that's so exciting because you can make that everything. I'm 62 now and it's taken me till now to realise it is so unholy to live a life like that. Welcome to the Hurt to Healing podcast with me, Pandora Morris. I've been fighting an uphill battle with my mental health for many years and it's only now that I've started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to support as many of you as possible on your own healing journey by sharing conversations that are more honest and more raw than ever before. I'll be speaking to some wonderful people from all walks of life who will open up about their own invisible struggles in the hope that it will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. Krista D'Souza is a mother and a British features journalist who contributes to many publications, including British Vogue, The Guardian, The Sunday Times, and many more. Krista is known for her articles, which often probe body issues such as aging, anorexia, and cosmetic surgery. Her writing is often praised for her humor and honesty, and sometimes her controversial subject matter. I wanted to speak to Krista today to discuss something she hasn't spoken about in too much detail before, her own struggle with an eating disorder and addictions. Krista is so unbelievably open in this conversation and discusses how she has learned to turn her previous pain into her power. And her own story has given me hope that these invisible bullies can be defeated. So Krista, you've written extensively about your tenuous relationship with alcohol, drugs and food. And I'd love to know whether there was a particular moment that stands out where you realised that your relationship was starting to impinge on your quality of life. So I think on a subconscious level, quite a long time ago, I remember my first alcoholic drink when I was 30 and I'd broken up with a boyfriend. It upset me to my core. I couldn't believe it. I was just so outraged that he broke up with me. And I remember just being unable to get out of bed. And I remember, bless her, this is not my mother's fault, but she said to me, have a drink. It'll make you feel better. Okay. It was the middle of the day. It was a bottle of red wine on the kitchen counter. I was living with her at the time. I know she was trying to help me because, you know, mothers can't bear it when their children are in agony. So she wouldn't do anything to make me feel better. She said, have a big gulp of red wine and it will make things better just for the moment. And she was right. It did. Now, it's not as though I didn't drink alcohol before I did, but I sort of remember in my mind that there was a kind of click. Ah, there is a way of not feeling that dreadful feeling. It was a way, because my primary problem, as is with a lot of women, I think, is food. It was also a way of keeping my appetite in check. 
I remember thinking to myself, I've just been dumped. I really don't know how to recover from this. But the one thing I don't want to do is eat on it because that had always been my go-to. When I had a problem, I'd eat on it. And I found this other thing, this other crutch. And it was very powerful and it was very subtle and it was very acceptable. And I was very disciplined about this little crutch that I had and only allowing myself to do it at a certain time and measuring the bottle and everything. And it was always never more than just under half a bottle. And that sustained me for a while. And you know, the thing about these crutches is they do work. But that was when I was 30. So scroll forward. So I'd been sort of been this highly functioning, yeah, addict for a long time. It really worked. It worked. It got me out of the house. It made me less baity. When children came along, it really was a fantastic cutoff between baby time and grown-up time. So I kind of highly ritualized it. So it really, really worked well, but it escalated. And I think the thing with things like drink and drugs is that they do escalate. They're sort of exponential. And what used to do very well for me, which started off two to three hefty glasses of red wine, I'd need more. And the other sort of terrible thing really is you're, it's never quite as good as it was in the beginning. So it's not, however much you drink, it's not doing what you want it to do. And that sounds very melodramatic. And on the outside, you wouldn't have probably noticed. Most people didn't. My partner did. There were certain friends who saw it get really messy. And the moment when I realized I can't manage anymore was New Year's Eve 2014, I think. So how long had it been going on for at that point? Gosh, 20, 25 years. It's a long time, isn't it? I took drugs as well. Again, I'd done those at college, but never as a sort of way of managing life. And that became a way of managing life too. You know, a quick pet me up in the afternoon, a way to go out to dinner with people I didn't really want to go out to dinner with, family gatherings, all that sort of thing. It became sort of knitted into my life. And then, as I said, it was New Year's Eve on 2014. And um, I knew I'd run out of my drugs. (laughs) And I knew because we weren't in London that in order to get more, I'd have to drive two and a half hours to get to them and to come back. And I also, by this time, there was a minimum order. So it was sort (laughs) of a huge commitment for someone who was only going to do them for New Year's Eve and had promised herself she was going to stop for January. And I made this humongous decision, okay, I'm not going to. I'm going to have a clean night. I'm going to stay and I'm going to let everybody else go out. I'm going to eat a healthy supper by myself in front of the TV and go to bed at 11.30. So, of course, it didn't end up like that. Because I didn't have any drugs, I ended up drinking a bottle of wine and half a bottle of toffee vodka, I remember, by myself because everybody else had gone out. And I woke up the next morning and I remember standing and thinking, I don't know how to put one foot in front of the other anymore because I've become so dependent on medicating. And no one really knows. That was the awful other part of it. No one besides my partner really knew about it. So, you know, the awful thing was I knew I could sort of just limped along. And it was a sort of like minor epiphany thinking, okay, I've got to do something. I can't do this anymore. And so 
one of the ways that you can make something realer is telling another person. And I told my partner, having spent years and years rationalizing it to him and hiding stuff and going to great lengths to show him that I was perfectly fine and that, yeah, I fell over occasionally, but I was fine. I could manage. And I said, I can't manage. And he was wonderful. He said, no, you can't, can you? We got to do something about this. And from that day on, I never picked up again. And so when did the drug start? Was that really to sustain your energy because you weren't eating and the eating disorder has sort of kicked in? Yeah, it's that ghastly trifecta of food, drink and drugs. And, you know, you're juggling these three Mm. balls in order to maintain what? Being able to get on the scales or being able to fit into a certain pair of jeans, which, you know, the older I get, and age is a fantastic thing, being able to realise that there is actually other ways of valuing the world and judging the world that you're in and seeing your place within the world and figuring out what you can give the world. There is more than looking thin or being a certain way. But as I said, this is, I think it's a function of someone being quite disciplined and needing boundaries. Mm. So I gave myself boundaries in which I could operate and that sort of felt made me feel safe. But of course, because I'm a human being and I have wants and needs, you're always spilling over those boundaries. So it's a reward, punishment, reward, punishment. I don't know if that makes sense. Makes total sense because I think a lot of the issues when you are an addict or when you have an eating disorder is it's this lack of sense of deservingness. You sort of feel that in order to eat a meal you need to have like depleted yourself sufficiently throughout the day and I remember like coming back from work and getting to the top of the escalators in the tube and just feeling like I was about to pass out but there was this little voice in me that was like yes that's exactly how we should feel like you go on and without that extreme intervention like you say with absolutely deciding that right Mm. New Year's Eve 2014 I am stopping that is it and I think it's much easier with the drugs and the alcohol in some ways because you can abstain completely Whereas, as we know, with food, it's something you have to confront daily. I think the food thing, it's so hard because, as you say, we die without food. And I think more people have a problem around it than we know, not just women either. Sometimes I can't help looking at life rather reductively. Like, what is this chasm that we all have, this inner chasm that needs to be filled by something. Because when you think about it, the food and the drugs and the drink, they're just, they're something, they're a substance. It doesn't really matter what substance it is. It could be anything. It could be work. It could be, I mean, I remember when I was in recovery, who was, someone was telling me they had this thing about water. <laughs> they had this addiction to, literally. I mean, I do think it can be anything, sex, whatever. But food is one of those things that's so tied up with comfort and mothers and safety before you can even talk that primal feeling of safety I still am quote-unquote neurotic about it I suppose but my god has it gotten easier and I've really had to work at it but also realize that it's crazy to work towards a goal there is no goal today is the goal now is the goal Yeah, because I think we're also always constantly trying to, it's like, oh yeah, well, tomorrow I'm going to have this epiphany or I'm saving up for later or I've planned that trip in six months time. So I've got, it's never, as you say, it's never in the here and now and actually cherishing this moment here. It's all we've got. It literally is 
all we've got. I remember I was interviewing someone. I can't remember the magazine I was interviewing. It was out in LA. She was a big music star. And I remember her saying to me what she loved doing was going on a campaign to get thinner. So she'd give herself, you know, when she was being shot for her latest video or whatever, you know, I've got a, a month to lose 20 pounds. And I so related to that. You know, you have a goal. And that's so exciting because you can make that everything. And it is really wishing your life away. And I'm 62 now and it's taken me till now to realise it is so unholy to live a life like that. But it's so entrenched as well. It's so entrenched in so many things. And when I say it's a daily struggle, I feel really guilty. This is not a struggle. We are two very lucky, privileged women. Many people have many worse struggles than we do. But it's a psychic struggle, which quite literally eats away at one. That's so true. What I want to circle back on is how your eating disorder first manifested itself. And you've spoken about that being the sort of underlying issue. Yeah, I mean, my parents split up when I was very, very young, two, three and I was very close to my dad, but I was also very close to my mother. And I was very clingy with my mother, clingy with both of them. And I think I must have felt some kind of lack of safety around that from a very early age. But the way it first manifested, I, as a little girl, didn't eat anything but sweets, basically. Sugar was my real thing. I mean, it was such a drug for me from such an early age. And I have this memory of, I must have been about seven or eight, and we had a we lived in this flat and it was one of those old style sort of consulting rooms. And so we had a pantry, which is where they used to keep all the medicines, but obviously we used it as a pantry. And my mum used to keep the brown sugar on the third or fourth shelf up. And I drag a chair over and, you know, when I thought no one was around and get a spoon out and just eat the sugar, the brown sugar out of the Tate and Lyle packets and just stand there and eat it until I was sick. And that I remember as being my first, wow, there is nothing in the world that is more comforting than this. Nothing. And then, of course, you know, later I got sent away to school and I didn't want to go. And the only thing which comforted me was tuck. And that was my life. Yeah, I can relate to that. And I've never been a very good bulimic. So, I mean, in the sense that I could never, you know, I was never very good at getting sick. Of course, I tried over the years, but that didn't really work out. But always, and then when I went to college, and I went to college in a different country, and I was very lonely, and sugary food was the way that I comforted myself. And it really worked. So, of course, you can imagine when I found drink that it could replace it. I was like, wow, this is fantastic. But of course, I was just lurching from one medication to another. And with your binging, was it always around the same sorts of food or were you very particular? Did you go out and sort of buy specific food or was it just everything and anything? Well, I mean, it was a sugar thing. I mean, I've always had this feeling of never having enough and like always the kind of mentality, there are only so many slices in a cake, basically. You know, oh, we're going to go out to dinner and if I'm on a food thing, there's not going to be quite enough for me. I'm going to have to eat something when I go home. Or if it's an alcohol thing, watching the bottle like an eagle. How much has gone? How much am I going to get? What about when it comes to an end? Am I going to have had enough? Am I going to need more when I go home? 
I have a pair of shoes. They're so comfortable. They're not expensive. And the immediate thought that went through my mind is not, oh, enjoy them. I need to get four more pairs. (laughs) I need to get four more pairs and line them all up and have them there just in case. And it's this fear, this primal fear that somehow anything I like is going to be taken away from me. And I can almost like talking about it with you, the fact that I'm aware of it is a good thing. I'm glad I can be aware of that because it makes it less... Scary in a way, Scary, it? shameful, and yeah, less scary. It's not my fault, I suppose. No, it's, it's not It's just, at all. it's what I was born with and I, but there are things that I can do about it now that I know what exactly. the problem is. Exactly. And it's that thing of knowing that it's your chimp brain talking to you saying, Krista, you need to get four pairs of these shoes <laughs> versus actually, do I really need the four pairs? And I don't know whether this is the case with you, but I find if I don't then say buy the four tubs of yogurt and I buy one, I walk out and I actually feel quite liberated and relieved. But in that moment of the decision of, ooh, I quite want to buy four actually. And like feeling that momentary comfort, but then I start to feel slightly uncomfortable. because Unsafe. Yeah, exactly. You kind of overstep the mark and you kind of know you have deep down. But it's this constant thing that I think that people like you and I have, which is always trying to true this line. But what line? What is this line that we feel we have to mark out with a great big indelible marker? And if we cross either side of it, we don't have to do that. It's okay. Our bodies will tell us. You know, there is a kind of natural order to things. We don't have to keep carving out our identity all the time. We need to let go. And letting go is such a weighted thing to say. What does that mean? I can eat anything I want whenever I want. Well, that's clearly not the case either. But that's me truing the line and go, oh, well, I eat and then I can punish myself, reward, punishment. It's a kind of circular, you know, the monkey brain. Just in being able to say that I have a monkey brain and to be able to look at that monkey brain makes me feel a hell of a lot better because I can see it for what it is. And knowing that your thoughts are just thoughts. They're then, just they're thoughts. Not Feelings aren't facts. I know we cannot, I think being in our category as people who suffer from any kind of addiction or an eating disorder, you cannot trust your feelings. Yes, exactly. It's funny because you're so much younger than me and that you have the wisdom to know that now is so fantastic because I didn't have that wisdom. I thought I was my feelings. I couldn't look beyond my feelings. I, Krista, was my feelings Mm. and we're not. There is something essential and wonderful beneath that. I'm not sure what that is. And I don't think I'll ever find out. But it's something that's okay and deserves to be here. How did you start your journey towards recovery? Because you've spoken about that moment in 2014, but had you sought help before that? Oh, yeah. You know, I've had a million therapists and I've tried hypnosis and I went to a few recovery meetings and thinking, oh, not for me, not for me, not for me. But what I did is I checked myself into an outpatient recovery center. Mm -hmm. And perhaps because I had the privilege of being older and I could afford to spend six months at home and never go out except for work, I made it a bit of a, I hate to say it, a goal. But I think it worked well for that particular project, shall I say, that I had, which was I have to not drink or do drugs for a discrete portion of time, as long as the treatment lasted, which was 100 days. So you had to go to four meetings a week. There are all these rules and, you know, we love rules, don't we? So that was great. And that got me on the right road. 
And then I gradually went to less meetings. I started to get into the swing of it because, you know, habits are a great thing. And I got myself, I forced myself into good habits. I mean, we should never, never dis having habits and routines. You know, we love our routines and rituals, but we can make them work for us. Yeah, so true. And it takes a bit of time, but it does become like brushing your teeth. And then, I don't know, if anyone's listening to this and thinking, you know what, I really have to examine my drinking or whatever, my drugging. There does, I promise you, come a point where you don't even think about it. Not just that, but the idea of drinking why would anyone need to drink? You know, what? why would you like even the taste of that? And you're perfectly fine other people drinking. In fact, I rather like it when other people are having this. I suddenly realized part of the reason I drank and did drugs is because I wanted other people to have a good time around me too. It was about other people as well. And knowing that other people are having a good time, that now gets me off big time. Yeah, no, I think it's such a good point that I think in today's day and age, it always really interests me why people associate not drinking with being boring. So it really frustrates me when I hear friends saying, oh, well, I'm going to be really boring tonight, but I'm actually not oh, going to drink God, or God. apologizing. Yes, me too. I mean, Christ, was I boring when I drank. My partner likes to remind me all the time, but I constantly repeated myself. I made inappropriate remarks. I hung around for too long. People are very, very boring when they're too drunk. You know, the other funny thing, I must tell you this, that when I was medicating, I was so frightened that I might say something wrong or I might hiccup or I might say something inappropriate that I tended to be quite quiet when I went out because I was frightened of revealing that I was wasted. Now that I'm not, now that I have a clear head wherever I go and I feel the same in the morning as I do at night, I have much more confidence because it's more authentic, isn't it? Mm. This is me. And if you saw me tomorrow morning at breakfast, I'd be the same. Yeah. And that was a wonderful feeling. You know, spending time away with friends on weekends, not being the last person to get up in the morning, not coming down feeling like death, not having to apologize for God knows what. Oh my God, it was a wonderful, wonderful feeling. Yeah, it's like you suddenly shed the skin and you oh, like suddenly Krista appears. Free. You feel free. It's a massive weight lifted off your shoulders. Yeah. But when you're in the midst of it, you cannot imagine life Could without it. I not imagine it. I cannot tell you. I remember thinking, God, wouldn't it be great if you could just do this without having to medicate? And, you know, you get to 6.30 and think, I physically can't do this. How do people do this? How do people go to parties without having a drink or a line or both? I just don't understand and still have a good time. I mean, I white knuckled a lot. Yeah, I was just about to say, I mean, was there a strategy of white knuckling at the beginning of your recovery? Yeah, yeah. But I enjoyed it because I, it was my project. That was your I thought, goal. Mm. I got to do this. Suck it up. You've got to do it. And eventually it became second nature. And it was the kindest thing I could do, not just for myself, but my family. I mean, you know, we have to realize that when we have these addictions to these things, the fallout from that and the toxicity that we emanate, they feel it too. And I was going to ask, how did your partner react and how did your sons react when you went on this journey? Were they supportive? Yes, they were. The kids were a bit young. I don't like to regret stuff, but I cannot help but feel regretful of how absent I was. Not physically, because I was always at home, but how emotionally and psychologically absent I was 
for the first years of their lives. I mean, right up until their teens. And I will never not regret that. And my partner, well, I mean, you know, I feel so bad for partners. It's so awful for them because on the one hand, they want you to be medicated because you're nicer to them. (laughs) But then on the other, they have this husk of a person that they're living with. Ah, the damage that in my case, it reeked in my case. Yeah. And I think relationships are a really interesting one because I think a lot of partners can't really cope when their partner goes on a recovery journey because suddenly, as you say, they're a sort of shell and then they suddenly blossom into this self-confident, self-accepting being. The dynamic in the relationship really shifts in a major way. It does. And I'm lucky because I have this incredible partner who is just always so supportive. We have a much better relationship as a result of it. Probably fight more though. We'll definitely argue more. And... I'm not saying that everything's plain sailing. It's not. Life is just the same as it was before, but at least you're present and dealing with it, which to me feels like a more honest way to live. Totally. And I'm sure it's like an interaction on a much more balanced level because you're no longer the victim and playing almost like the child in the relationship. Completely. I mean, if you have an addiction, it's quite easy for one's partner to infantilize you. You can't do anything. You can't open a brown paper envelope. Actually, I still can't do that. But it was like, don't ask me to do anything after eight o'clock in the evening. Just don't, because it, I'm not going to be able to do anything. Don't ask me to do anything responsible or get on the phone and have to talk to anyone grown up. So it cut out a whole swathe of my life that he had to deal with. And, you know, partners get used to that. And then when that's taken away and they don't have to look after you anymore, that's a change in a relationship. But in our case, I think it was a great change. I think if you're in the right relationship, which you obviously were and are, then it's amazing. It can just absolutely blossom into the most beautiful thing. Yeah. So talk to me about your food when you were in the 12-step program. What happened with that? Yeah, I talked about that ghastly trifecta. I mean, the drink and the drugs, it was easy to draw a line over those, under those. But with food, that took much longer. And I remember with horror for that first year, I definitely put on half a stone or whatever it was. I mean, I tried not to get paranoid about it, but I couldn't help it. But what can I say? And it, that was really hard at first. But then it was like almost flying a little bit when I realized, wait a minute, you don't have to medicate on something in order to feel okay. You can be comfortable with that bit of discomfort and you'll survive. And it was a subtle but really important thing that one of many therapists I had, but I had one particular wonderful one who really worked with me on that, of feeling comfortable with discomfort and knowing that that feeling wasn't forever. And that was a really, really great life lesson, you know, that it too shall pass. And I really worked with that. At first, I was all over the place when you ask about my food. But then I got into a kind of rhythm and I know now what suits my body. I know that if I just eat toast all day, bread goes straight to my eyelids. It's just what it is. That's the way it feels. Now, that's not me being Rexy. That's me realizing, you know, you have your toast for breakfast and that feels great. And you have your coffee and your or your cup of tea. And then it's okay not to eat until lunch because feeling a bit hungry, you're going to survive. You're going to be fine. And then having some lunch and then knowing that lunch comes to an end, you're going to be okay. 
and trusting that it will be okay. You're going to be all right. You know, I always sometimes think someone once said to me in recovery, addiction is about being compelled to change the way you feel at all times. And it's a bit like that. I've always got the desire to feel slightly better than I already do. I just have a little bit more, a little bit more. And just to be aware of that. Mm. And knowing that you can eat like a normal, healthy person and have the bad things and wake up feeling like you've overeaten, but it's not the end of the world. Mm. It's amazing, actually, how you can recover from those destructive feelings Mm. very soon. You can wake up feeling, you know, we all know what a food hangover feels like, but the day goes on and you'll feel better. Yeah, and I think it's normalizing it. Sometimes I say to myself, okay, I might have overdone it yesterday, but how many people in the world indulge on a birthday or on a holiday or whatever it is? And actually, it's normal to feel a bit like uh, groggy the next morning. But instead of trying to control that groggy feeling and to try and, like you say, you self-medicate your feelings almost because you want to feel a certain way, it's actually just being like, okay, I feel a bit groggy. That's okay. Sitting with it. And as you say, this too shall pass. It sort of just moves on. Yes. And also knowing that this is what grown-ups tell you all the time, but it's the truth. Nobody's really looking. Nobody's really looking. If you feel heavier, that doesn't have to colour your whole day. Don't look through the prism of that. You don't have to. You're the only one who's looking at life through that prism. Also stuff like, (laughs) I had in my cupboard my thin clothes and my fat clothes, and that was just a way of punishing myself. That's not what I bring to the table, being a certain weight. It really isn't. I mean, who do I think I am? It's not like I'm a model whose income depends on her weight. It's not relevant to what I do. The fact that, you know, my genes are looser isn't going to make me more valuable to the people around me. I forgot to say one other thing, which is probably quite formative, and I don't blame him one tiny bit because this is the way he was brought up. But my father was very fattest. He was very, very fattest. And he was terrified that his beloved daughter, I was the eldest, and he was terrified that I'd become dumpy. And he made that very clear from a very early age. All children, or most children, go through puppy fat. I did. But to him, it was like this was going to be forever. And a lot of my childhood, because we used to go on summer holidays with my dad, is coloured by having to eat in secret, like going on holiday to places. He used to take us to these fabulous places, but then having to take food into the loo so he wouldn't see me eat because I was only allowed to eat certain things in front of him. And that obviously had an effect. As I said, it's not his fault, but it felt like his love was conditional. Yeah, and I think that's what a lot of us with eating disorders struggle with is the the idea that if you get better and if you are like quote unquote a healthy weight and just like being on the middle road and like not going from zero to a hundred, it's like, okay, I've got to either train like an Olympic athlete or I'll lose this entirely. And as you said, it's like using our routine and our focus to serve us. And it's incredible the discipline that we have, but for so long, it can be so, so dysfunctional. And you sort of thrive off the feeling that you're slightly pushing yourself to the edge. Yes. And actually suddenly just being able to be present and actually feeling a bit settled and being, as you said, it's like 
that slight feeling of comfort in the discomfort because knowing that the discomfort is a good thing because if you're feeling discomfort, you're kind of doing something right. Absolutely. That thing you said about you only really feel alive when you're pushing yourself to the edge. Oh my God, I so relate to that. You feel you only exist at that sort of vibration that's a little dangerous. Mm. And what's that about? It's like we're constantly trying to prove to ourselves we're alive or something. And you don't have to go to the edges to be alive. In fact, you shouldn't. No, health is balance, right? I mean, that's what we're all seeking is this awful word, moderation. Oh, um, moderation, balance. They've, yeah. they've really frightened me, those words. But it's what it is. I know. And I can't believe I'm in, I only really know this in my seventh decade because a lot of getting clean, you know, those seven years that I've been clean have been about, well, certainly the first two years faking it to make it. You know, it only for me started becoming part of my DNA, as it were, after about two years. And how have your friends been? Do you feel that you've culled a lot of your old friends or have they been very supportive on the journey? Most people have been wonderful. I did have certain friends who I caned it with. And for a year, I just couldn't see those people. They were too triggering and I felt so nostalgic. And what have I left behind? It was like a real love affair. I see them now and, you know... When it gets to be midnight and I've had my tea and everyone's getting a bit messy, I kind of do want to go home. But you arrange your life around it. Like my partner is one of those people who's not a heavy drinker at all, but he, he'll stay till the bitter end. But I need to know that I've got transport there to take me home earlier. And we have an arrangement. It's okay that I leave earlier. And I also can't bear standing around at cocktail parties. Can we just eat? So I can get a bit impatient about stuff like that, but I, I'm working on it. Do you have any daily habits now that you sort of implement that help you to feel grounded and present? Is therapy ongoing? Do you still attend? No, interesting. Somebody else asked me that. I don't have any therapy, but I'm reading this wonderful book called The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer, which for me, not for everyone, is really helpful in centering me. And then I've learned other things which kind of, I need to eat regularly and healthily And I need to kind of watch that. And sometimes that means not eating what everybody else is eating, but it's okay. I take a freezing shower every morning and that is become a really crucial part of my day. And I know that sounds a bit mad, but it sets me up. It's very important to set myself up right when I get up in the morning. I don't write a little gratitude list in the morning, but I say it to myself and we both say it to each other. And then we list the things. You know, bad things happen all the time, but I feel like I'm better equipped to deal with them with a clear head. Oh, another thing is I like to be comfortable in what I wear. I mean, I used to work for a fashion, I worked for a fashion magazine for quite a long time. I'm not in fashion, but I worked for a fashion magazine. And clothes were terribly important. And although they are still important, I have to be comfortable because there is nothing less fashionable than looking uncomfortable. And I spent sort of a lifetime feeling uncomfortable, too high shoes, too tight clothes or whatever. And comfort, real comfort, that's super elegant, I think. And nighttime rituals, what's your sort of oh, yeah. go-to now? Okay, I have this little dessert I make for myself so that I don't, and obviously you can't do that with your people's houses, but I have this like little frozen yogurt thing that I make for myself, which everybody else thinks is disgusting. It's made of coconut milk and agave and Greek yogurt and... <laughs> 
freeze them in the fridge, take up all the space in the fridge. My partner goes nuts. But it takes a long time to eat and it's a way of, you know, I just eat very slowly while watching TV and it sort of settles me. I do the crossword. I do Wordle, I do Quordle, and I do something on the New York Times called Spelling Bee. They are very much rituals and they definitely help me sleep. I didn't realize until I got sober how well you sleep when you don't drink. And when I overeat, because I do sometimes, and you know, there are the occasional horrible binge pops up now and then. Which it does. Which it does. I'm sorry, but it does just less frequently. Or indeed, if I haven't eaten enough, that's a horrible way to go to bed and you sleep badly and you feel it. You feel it. And I think it slowly just becomes less important and less frequent. And it's being okay with those those days when you might overeat and trying to, if you do have a binge, it's actually, as you say, it's not expecting to have an epiphany of that binge and to be left feeling euphoric because we seek that comfort still and that safety, which I think when you get to a certain point in your recovery, it actually ceases to give you. And you slightly dread it, but the thrill of sort of doing it is still there. Oh, so the, just, oh, the mm. thrill. Oh, you <laughs> lock the doors, you know, fill the fridge, get out, everyone. No, I still have that. But I know what it is now. Yeah. I know what it takes to make me feel sane. And, you know, I screw up. Like we all do. You fall over, particularly with the food. I think with the drugs and alcohol, obviously, relapse is more serious. But I think when it comes to food, it can't be perfect 100% of the time. And it's also kind of a nice reminder that you're human and your body gets hungry and it craves things and it's sort of sweet. I mean, I know when I'm craving like a lemon fairy cake or whatever it happens to be, piece of Battenberg, it's not actually that I want. It's the feelings that were associated with it. And I know that. And sometimes just a lovely hot cup of tea will do the trick. Yeah. You don't need the other stuff. Not always. Sometimes it's really great to Mm. eat the piece of cake as well. But I know how sugar is very triggering for me. It's just like you said, it's just navigating your own sea. And it's about, again, big cliche. It's about the journey, not the goal. And the journey is great. I'm really trying to be on that slow journey. Well, Krista, you've been absolutely fantastic and I really appreciate you being so open and sharing your story because it's an incredibly powerful story and you're so brave and courageous. So thank you for helping so many other people with your story. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission.